welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. I am your host, Krista Horton. We never say our last name. Did you know that might be the first time I said that? And I'm here with my co-host, Zach Horton. Vice, vice host. Vice host. Assistant to the host. That's right. I'm in charge here. (laughs) Just kidding. But we, um, Glad to be with you. This is episode 10, uh, Matthew 8, 9, and Mark 2 through 5. So a lot of chapters this week, um, and we're not going to be able to nearly touch all of them, but there's a couple that we want to focus in on and some things that I really think will make a difference for you this week, so... Especially because we're talking about miracles. Yeah. I guess today we don't really have a study tip, but we have um, an introduction to Mark because we haven't done that one yet. We kind of have done those introductions to some of the other gospel writers, but here we go on Mark. We touched a little bit on him in in one of our earlier episodes, um, and I wanted to offer just a little bit more detail. So if you remember from the episode that we introduced, the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um one of the mistakes we can make when approaching the New Testament is thinking that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all pretty much the same. They're completely different, which is ironic because a lot of their material is the same, almost in some places word for word, but they put it in different places. They organize it differently. They emphasize different things, and there's little details here and there. Most Bible scholars believe that Mark's gospel was written first and that it is actually, Mark was a, John Mark was a, a a missionary companion of Peter. And so a lot of people think that he wrote down Peter's account of everything he'd seen. And Mark's job was just to write it all down. He doesn't really pay a whole lot of attention to chronology, to timing. He just wants to write down everything that Jesus, that Peter's telling him that Jesus did. Um, Mark's gospel moves really fast. However, this is a perfect episode to showcase Mark's um, Mark's gospel because a lot of times I know that our go-to gospel is Matthew because it's the first one. However, whenever you're dealing with something that Jesus did, a miracle or a healing, Mark almost always does it better. He's got a little bit more detail. Matthew and Luke, most Bible scholars assume that they took their content from Mark. So they had Mark's gospel, and when they came to something Jesus did, they took from Mark and then maybe added something or or took something away that didn't fit their purposes to put it in their gospel. And then they had another source that um, a lot of, here's your fancy Bible scholar phrase of the day, but a lot of people call it the Q document theory. And they think that Matthew 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 and Luke had access to another document that's just called the Q document. Uh, stands for Quella, the source. And it's the source of the sermons and the parables that Matthew and Luke have, but that Mark doesn't really have a whole lot of. Mark does this, though. There is a word that appears, um, I think, 47 times in Mark. It shows up in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And that word immediately shows up 47 times in the book of Mark. Mark's job is to move with speed and with power through these miracles of Jesus. The reason why is helpful to understand Mark, and it's also helpful for us to understand this episode. So most people think that Mark was writing during the reign of Emperor Nero. And if you know the story of Nero, it's just messed up. It's like 
uh, this Roman soap opera thing. So there's a fire that breaks out in Rome. Most people, most historians think that Nero is actually the one that started the fire in some kind of drunken fit or rage. However, he claims that the Christian and the Jewish sectors of Rome are the only ones that didn't catch fire. And so he blames the fire on the Christians and the Jews, thus spawning some of the most intense and violent and horrific persecution that's ever happened. Um, He was kind of a gross man. He would decapitate Christians then coat their head in tar, and then light their heads on fire and use them as torches for garden parties. I mean, that's how, that's how horrible it was. And so Mark, when he comes along to write his gospel, he's writing in this moment, and his goal is to write to Christians who are terrified. They're running for their lives, and they're trying to cling to their faith, but Jesus is gone, and the apostles are starting to go, and we've got this bloodthirsty Roman emperor that's after us, and Mark's trying to write them and remind them, hey, remember who it is that you worship. Remember this Jesus. Remember why it is that we follow him, and to prove that he indeed does have the power to to save them, if not in their life, then in the life to come. Which is kind of cool to to think here we are beginning in Mark 2 through 5 with these, like you're saying, these really powerful, powerful story, one after another, of of what Jesus is doing. And it's really fitting it's for really our day. Cool. Think of how persecuted, mm-hmm. not physically maybe, but, but uh, intellectually maligned Christians are today for what we believe and what we hold to. And the book of Mark is a great book for us. So... We want to start with one story smack dab in the middle of our Mark and chapters this week, and it's in Mark chapter 4. It's a well-known story. Um, Jesus enters a boat, and they're sailing across the sea, and uh, he he falls asleep. He's exhausted. <laughs> and so he's, he's fallen asleep, and as they're out on the Sea of Galilee, um, as is very common, they hit this pretty violent, quick, immediate storm. And it's so intense that the the other apostles on the boat, and remember they're fishermen, they're terrified of what's happening to the boat. And so they rouse the Savior, and this is verse 37, there arose a great storm of the wind, and the waves beat on the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, there's four questions in the story, but two we want to highlight. Here's the first one. Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now, the first time you read that, you're thinking, oh, this is the apostles asking Jesus in the boat if he cares whether or not the boat flips over. But knowing now what we know about what's going on in Mark's day and what's going on in our day, Mark's not writing about the apostles asking Jesus if he cares if the boat flips over. Mark's writing about Christians who are crying out to their God saying, Master, carest thou not that we perish? The second question that they ask After Jesus stands up and he calms the storm, chastises them for their lack of faith. Then in verse 41, And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the two questions we want to answer in just looking at a couple of miracles, and of course your study is going to answer these in in way more ways than we can do. Question one, does Jesus care? Um, that we're going through difficult trials. And we'll see evident in the miracles that we're reading that, yes, he absolutely does. And then question two, who is this? What manner of man is this? What power does he have 
to calm our own storms and to, to settle our own rocking ships. The first story we're going to start with actually comes right in this next chapter. So that that miracle on the on the sea um, takes place at the end of chapter four and then beginning in um, chapter five, which actually I didn't think of until until um, until you just read that. But that these these happen, you know, the question is asked at the end of verse four, who then is this? And here we see this um, story of um, of a man, an unclean spirit. It says in verse 2, As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him any more, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now this sounds like a pretty sad person. Sad is an understatement, actually. Well, it makes me think of the storm that was just afflicting the apostles on the water. Yeah, very physical. Here's a man that's in the middle of a very violent storm. Whatever this is, he's being torn and pushed. And And as we were discussing earlier, there's not really solid evidence on what what we don't know exactly what it is yeah Yeah. but um obviously this yeah you just kind of your heart goes out to what he's feeling and he's alone and obviously no one wants to really go go near him or be by him um but these next verses starting in verse six when he saw jesus from a distance he ran and knelt down before him and he cried out with a loud voice What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, so Jesus had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The reason this story really stood out to me this time was he knew Jesus. Here was a man who barely knew himself, who didn't have friends or associations. My guess is he was not hanging around the crowds that were following Jesus in the streets. He was off in the distance, on his own, in a cave, trying to unchain himself and harm himself. And here he is recognizing who Jesus is. So who is this then that we asked as one of our questions? It's Jesus, son of the most high God. Mm -hmm. So here, I guess it's just really cool to me to think how hard it is for these learned people, these people that are of high status, who are knowing what Jesus are seeing some of these miracles and still not daring to believe what, what Jesus is or who Mm -hmm. he is. And here is this person who doesn't even know himself. I mean, Jesus asks him later on, well, right after that, what is your name? He doesn't remember his name. He just says, my name is Legion because we are many. He just, all he recognizes himself is by his, his his personal demons. And I think the, as we can kind of parallel these stories, which I wasn't even thinking of doing, but really as we parallel these stories of the the physical storm and this really personal um, inward torment of Mm -hmm. a storm, I guess you could say, I think it's really powerful to see that the power that comes as he recognizes who Jesus is, because the end of the story um, is that, you know, they, 
he casts out the demons and i don't know the significance of the the pig sto- of the story but <laughs> i don't know if it is but it's an interesting it's it's interesting and you're making an interesting point um i think a traditional reading of these verses is uh that all the spoken text from this man comes from the the devil or the devils that possess him right we my name is legion for we are many yeah um which it could very well be. Well, it could be that it's it's amazing that even devils that's what recognize I, Jesus. That was what I'm saying. Uh-huh. You know, even someone like if they can see it or they know mm-hmm. because they can feel and sense his power to rebuke them. Yeah. And I'm thinking, isn't that cool? If if I'm if I again if I'm if I'm this first century Christian dealing with everything that's coming at me, I'm reading this story and saying, okay, who? What manner of man is this? This Jesus that I follow has control over legions of devil. Legion, uh, Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. It doesn't necessarily mean that there are 6,000 demons in this man. But, many, but the word is selected yeah. that Jesus can command a legion of devils like that. In fact, this legion of devils begs him for his mercy and and uh, he they're completely at his whim and so if i'm if i'm being tossed on my personal boat or looking at it i'm thinking okay i can i get why i follow this man he can if he can do that with these demons certainly he can do it with my own demons he can yeah. cast them out he can control them and and free me from whatever's tying me down and i do like the end of the story he goes and um wants to remain with jesus but jesus tells him just go in this instance he says go and tell what you know the mercy that i've had on you and this is in verse 20 so he went out and began to proclaim in the decapolis how much jesus had done for him and they were all amazed yeah it's really cool um one thing i like about that story is that in the miracles of jesus we see plenty of examples of physical healings but the one that you're just reading there's nothing physically wrong with this man it's a it's a possession which is either a spiritual malady and it's probably accompanied by mental or emotional um, mm-hmm. diseases or, or, or problems as well. And so I like that Jesus has control over not just physical healings, but has the power to heal mental and emotional and spiritual problems. Yeah. Um, the two stories that I thought of, I thought of one and then the next one followed so naturally. Well, there's so many. There there's are. So many there are. <laughs> but there are examples where Jesus does a physical healing and a spiritual healing in the same miracle. The first one is all the way back in chapter 2. Uh, and this is the miracle where Jesus is teaching and there's a man that is, uh, that is palsied. And so his friends bring him to the Savior. They can't get in to meet the Savior because there's this crowd surrounding, which, by the way, Mark uses this phrase all the, all the time. He talks about crowds and press, and Jesus in Mark's Gospels constantly trying to get away from the crowds. You get the sense that Jesus really doesn't want crowds around him because it inhibits his ability to minister individually to people the way that he would like. Nevertheless, that's what's happening. And so they cut a hole in the square roof, over where Jesus is teaching, they put this man on a bed and they lower his bed down. And what's interesting is he's obviously physically injured or physically sick, physically ill, um, physically handicapped. And yet the first thing the Savior says to him is, Son, this is chapter 2, verse 5, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. The first thing he does is a spiritual healing. 
And I think anyone in that situation would look at that and say, well, the most important thing is to heal the body. That's the obvious problem. Jesus looks past that. For him, healing a body is as simple as casting out a legion of devils. He can do it like that. His focus isn't just on the body, it's on the spirit. His focus is on forgiveness and on cleanliness and on being right before God. He knows, just as we know in our heart of hearts, that paper cuts and broken bones and injured things like that hurt, but not nearly as much as guilt and self-deprecation, worry, anxiety, depression. Those things hurt way more than those kind of physical injuries. And so Jesus goes right to the source of true pain. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then, of course, he he discerns the thoughts of those that are there. What manner of man is this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus performs the physical healing as proof that he has power to perform the spiritual healing, which is an interesting way to look at a physical healing. It's almost an afterthought. Just to prove to you that I can heal this man spiritually, I say to him, Son, take up thy bed, arise, and go into thy house. And they marvel um, at the physical healing, but the most incredible Part of the miracle is that Jesus was able to forgive sins like that for this man that that's brought down to him. I read this quote this week um, from a Christian author. Author, his name's Jared Wilson, and um, it really got me thinking. And it's right in line with what you're what you're talking about here. He says, "Miracles are acts of heavenly normalization," and it just kind of puts it into perspective mm. for me a little bit on like, you know, this. This stuff is just what Jesus knows. It's very normal for normal him. Normal for him, not for us. And then there was that. Um, yeah, that you had well, that James one. E. Talmadge quote from Jesus the Christ, where he says that uh, miracles don't. I'm paraphrasing, but miracles um, don't occur in contravention of natural law. They don't break laws. They're just wrought by the operation of laws not commonly known or understood. Uh, this is a perfect example. Jesus is the, they critique him. You can't forgive sins this way. Well, Jesus can. He's operating in a law that they don't understand, but which he does. In both cases, the forgiveness and the healing of the man. He knows how to do it. He knows the spiritual science behind forgiveness. He knows the physical science behind the healing. And so something that's normal to Jesus looks miraculous to us. I think it's a cool thought to think but that this. we don't know the laws of heaven yeah. you know the hev- the laws of heaven are foreign to us mm-hmm. and what's happening well that starts to get out there a little i just like that um <laughs> it's healing a for me <laughs> healing body and spirit is normal to jesus yes i like that a lot yeah. uh the second story i thought of with a physical and a spiritual healing together and this one's my favorite and perhaps uh, it's one of my top three in all of scripture, um, and it's maybe my favorite. It's certainly my favorite in these chapters, and maybe my favorite in all of Mark, um, is the story of uh, the healing of the woman with an issue of blood. So if you remember, Jesus uh, is approached by a wealthy ruler in the city, Jairus, who comes to him and says, my daughter is sick. Can you come and heal her? Jesus says, of course. And as he's on his way, um, I, I just want to read the story because it's so powerful. This is chapter 5, verse 24. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. There's Mark's press and crowd and throng again. And a certain woman, Mark uses, in fact, all the gospel writers do this quite often. They'll use certain anytime they want to make a, a typecast, a general image 
that you can put yourself on. So if they name someone, they're talking about someone named, but sometimes when they say a certain woman, they want you to see yourself in the story. So a certain woman, it could very well be you, a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Um, this woman's life for the last 12 years, if she has had an issue of blood, um, whatever that may be, and there's discussions about what it could be, um, but whatever it is, issues of blood made someone ritually unclean which means not only is she unclean, but anyone that comes in contact with her is pronounced unclean, which means for 12 years, this woman has had nobody. Just like the man possessed by demons, no one, yeah. no friends, no one talks to her, no one touches her. Imagine 12 years without any physical contact at all. No one to comfort her, no one to give her even the kindest phrase. Maybe the reason she's a certain woman is because she's lost her very name as she sits on the street. She's spent all of her money, is nothing bettered. She's tried everything the world has to offer and none of it has worked. And so this last ditch effort as Jesus, the healer from Nazareth, walks down the street, she reaches out and thinks, if I can just touch his clothes, then maybe I can be healed. And of course, she is. But that's the physical healing. Verse 30, when Jesus, immediately knowing that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said, thou seest the multitude thronging thee and sayest, who touched me? And he looked around to see her that had done this thing. The woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what she had done, came and fell down before him and told him the truth. And he said unto her, my favorite word in the story, daughter. After 12 years of no one looking at her and no one talking to her and no one touching her, Jesus kneels down and says to her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee, notice, whole. In verse 29, she was healed. And now he says, thy faith hath made thee whole of thy plague. I love that phrase. The plague he's referencing there is obviously not the physical one because she was already healed from that. The plague that he's healing her from now is the plague of self-doubt, the, the plague of, of again, self-deprecation, the plague of forgetting your identity in the eyes of the world, the plague of being so beaten down by the world that you start to beat yourself down. That's the plague he's healing her from. He calls her daughter. He compliments her faith and tells her that she's whole. And so the physical healing is great. The spiritual healing to me is so much more powerful. And if we're talking about the Jesus that we can trust in, I love the Jesus that can heal me physically, but the one that can see into my heart and identify those problems and can heal those or make those whole in me. I think President Nelson has given a string of my favorite talks lately. <laughs> but um, in April of 2017, he gave a very powerful talk about drawing well it's entitled drawing the powers of jesus christ into our lives and he uses the story um to illustrate and teach um about what this power is that we can access through jesus christ what manner of man is this yes we're going to play a portion of it here right now 
Do you remember the biblical story of the woman who suffered for 12 years with a debilitating problem? She exercised great faith in the Savior, exclaiming, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. This faithful, focused woman needed to stretch as far as she could to access his power. Her physical stretching was symbolic of her spiritual stretching. Many of us have cried out from the depths of our hearts a variation of this woman's words. If I could spiritually stretch enough to draw the Savior's power into my life, I would know how to handle my heart-wrenching situation. I would know what to do, and I would have the power to do it. When you reach up for the Lord's power in your life with that same intensity that a drowning person has when grasping and gasping for air, power from Jesus Christ will be yours. When the Savior knows you truly want to reach up to Him, when He can feel that the greatest desire of your heart is to draw His power into your life, you will be led by the Holy Ghost to know exactly what you should do. When you spiritually stretch beyond anything you have ever done before, then His power will flow into you. I love, I've always loved the story of this woman. But for some reason, the retelling of this by President Nelson really um, just struck home as he explains that, that reaching up and, the, and that stretching that we often do, or that ev- even that, that illustration of, of the drowning, of sometimes we are drowning, and sometimes we're tossed at sea, like we talked about earlier. Um, but that all we need to do is reach up or turn to Jesus and ask him, I don't have much faith, but we're going to die mm-hmm. <laughs> in this boat. Um, and it takes us turning to him and seeking him and finding him or reaching up to him. And his power um, will be manifest in our lives. Yeah. You know, Matthew 5 or Mark 5 ends. Um, we stopped in the middle of the story with the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. But Jesus then continues on his way and goes to Jairus's house. In the meantime, she's died. Um, when he tells the crowd that she just is sleeping, uh, verse 39 uh, or verse 40, they laughed him to scorn. Um, I think it's really easy to doubt the Savior's ability to do all the things that Mark is saying that he can do, but he can. And then in verse uh, 41, again, an unnamed young woman he took the damsel by the hand and said to her, Talitakumi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Um, I think the message of, of Jesus to us is, one, I do care. I, of course I care. I've always cared and I always will care about what's going on, about the storms and the trials that you're going through. And question two, like you said, uh, what manner of man is this? He's the one that as soon as we arise, as soon as we stand up, as soon as we reach out, he heals, he makes whole, um, he overwhelms with blessings and generosities 
And I just, I love that about him. So, Isn't it beautiful to study these miracles and really just recognize the miracle that he can have, the miracle that he can perform in our own lives as we do these things? And I just love it. So grateful to be able to study these chapters that are so rich in these stories that remind us of the miracle of Jesus. You guys, thank you so much for studying with us. Um, We're grateful for all of you who have been sharing the podcast with your friends and family. I don't think there could be a better compliment than that. We're just grateful for this community that has enriched our own personal study and just given us a cause to be together in. What a better cause than, than this cause of Christ. So we hope you have a great study and we will be back next week for more.